We are a multi-site church. We love our Latham community. We love all of you. And we also have three other great communities, Greenbush, Half Moon, and Saratoga, who are going to join us in worship at a 9 and 11 o'clock service tomorrow. And as you all know, Saturday here at Latham is our recording service. So what that means is that we're going to have to start over with the 2020 video. Please bear with us. Thank you for your time. <laughs> we'll get this going up as soon as I get off the platform. We are very appreciative of all of you. Thank you. We're going to have a great service on Worry. Good. The parade of mission teams coming and going from our church continues this month. Our Uganda medical team just returned from visiting our partners in Jinja and Palace of Uganda. They set up clinics and treated friends and villagers. They spoke in church meetings and they spent time loving on the staff and children that we sponsor over there. Right now, we have groups preparing to do mission work in Toronto and Uganda again in July. Let's pray for God to continue to bless all the work that our teams have been doing around the world for the kingdom of God this spring. And let's remember to pray for this next wave of brothers and sisters who are getting ready to leave soon. And if you'd like to find out more about how you can be part of one of these exciting mission teams, you can learn all about that on our website at gracefellowship.com missions. One of our core values as a church is calling. Basically, that means we're all about people serving God in a way that's unique to them, doing what you're good at and what you're passionate about for the glory of God. And a great example of someone who's lived out their calling is Larry Van Nostrand. For more than 20 years, our church has been blessed to have a thriving and fruitful financial ministry team. No one has had a greater impact on this ministry than Larry. From the early days of grace right up until now, Larry has worked tirelessly to bring our congregation top-notch classes like Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University, The Legacy Journey, and Generation Change. In addition to that, Larry's led our financial counseling team and our benevolence ministry for years. And over the course of two decades, Larry has literally volunteered tens of thousands of hours, all for the sake of helping our church family live in financial freedom for the glory of God. Recently, Larry decided to take a step down from his leadership role in our financial ministry so that he can spend more time at home with his family. And it was a tough decision for him after such a huge investment, and he's left some big shoes to fill. But today, we want to recognize Larry and his family for everything they've given to our church, and we thank God for him and how we've been blessed by the way he's cooperated with the Holy Spirit to live out God's calling for his life. In the history of Grace Fellowship and of the church at large, one thing is certain. Prayer is the foundation to any great kingdom work. We're more than a year into this 2020 vision campaign at this point, and while we've seen some great stories come out of this project, there's still so much more ahead of us. We wanna see lives rescued for Jesus here in our Jerusalem. We wanna see the capital region impacted by the ministry of Grace Fellowship, and we wanna see people around the world blessed by the generosity and compassion of our church family. But wanting it isn't enough. We need to pray. And I wanna remind you of these prayer cards that are in the displays in the lobby. If you don't know how to pray for this campaign, pick up one of these 
and keep it in your Bible. Because with prayer, we will see God continue to do great things with 2020 Vision. And once again, thank you to everyone who's continued to give to this campaign. As you can see, we're getting closer each month to celebrating that bronze giving level of $2.5 million. And as always, to learn more about 2020 Vision, you should definitely check out our webpage, onlinegracefellowship.com slash 2020vision. And now Pastor Rex is going to be preaching from Luke chapter 12 as we finish our current series, Jesus, Lord of Everything. What a great update and report. Thank you, Jeff, for that. Listen, I want to ask you a personal question today. You don't need to blurt your answer out, but just, just answer it in your, in your head. How much do you worry? Would you have to say, well, pastor, I worry a little bit? Or would some of you need to say, you know what, if I'm being honest, I am kind of a world-class worrier. I'm what you would call a regular old worrywart. In a recent article called Don't Worry, Be Happy, Worrying Less Can Lengthen Your Life, Rick Nathanson reports on an extensive study that lasted for 12 years at Purdue University. 1,663 men at middle age or older were kind of followed in this study for a 12-year period of time. And those who scored above the 50th percentile in neuroticism were 40% more likely to die during the study period than those men whose neuroticism remained stable. Now, what did they mean by neuroticism? This was the definition. It was defined as excessive worry over minor events and setbacks. Anxiety is the number one diagnosis in psychiatry, says Dr. Robert Olson, a psychiatrist with Presbyterian Medical Group. More than 50% of the people I see in my practice have anxiety or an anxiety component. 100% of human beings will experience anxiety at some point in their lives, situational or otherwise. America has been shocked this week uh, at the report of two very well-known people who committed suicide. You can see their pictures on the screen. Famous chef Anthony Bourdain and the beloved designer Kate Spade both hanged themselves in the last several days. The irony about this is that both of these individuals were not only highly successful, but they both exuded confidence and vibrancy. They were both portrayed as courageous people who kind of had a love for life and so on. And yet the truth is, both battled intense anxiety and depression. I read that suicide is really on the increase in our country. In fact, it is the number two cause of death for college and university students. And it's common among other demographics as well. So I just want to say to you, first of all, whatever your age or place in life, if you have any thoughts, any thoughts of harming yourself, any thoughts of suicide, listen, please, please, please reach out. Obviously, you can reach out to anyone 
here at church. You can also, if you just want to remain maybe more anonymous, there's a number on the screen, uh, a national lifeline for suicide that you can call and speak to someone about what you're going through. Someone described suicide as a permanent solution to a temporary problem. These things that you feel so hopeless about right now, trust me, they're not hopeless. There is a way that God can work in your life to bring you through what you're, what you're going through right now. Dr. Rollo May, the noted psychologist, said, anxiety is now the official emotion of our age. And yet in a reality like that, Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. Question, how can we get that inner peace that Jesus talked about, how can we get that in our own lives? How can we experience this peace that passes all comprehension in a world filled with so much anxiety? Well, let's talk about that today, but let's begin by asking this practical question, what causes worry in the first place? Well, I think there are a number of key sources, but I just want to mention uh, several of them to you, maybe four. You might want to jot these down. I think one is our 21st century lifestyle. We are the most hectic, hurried, and hassled people I believe that have ever lived. We live pretty close to a golf course, and on our way home a lot of times we'll go by and see the third tee there on the golf course, and there's often people there, groups of people uh, playing golf, ready, you know, just kind of driving there on that third tee, and it's amazing how frequently I'll see people out there on their cell phone, doing work on their smartphone, their colleagues are there, kind of waiting for them sometimes, sometimes looking a little annoyed while they're there working while we're supposed to be out there playing golf. But that's typical of America. I understand that the average office worker is interrupted 202 times a day. The average desk worker has 36 hours of work piled up on their desk. 50 to 70 million Americans have sleep disorder problems and migraine headaches are up 60% over the last 20 years. I think all these are symptoms of a lifestyle that's fast and frenetic and hectic. We're the only country in the world that has a mountain called Rushmore. And that's exactly what we do. We rush and rush more and more and more. It's a problem. I believe another key cause of our anxiety is sensationalism in the media. Now, let's just be clear about this. God needs Christians in the media. I hope you would say amen to that. And we have some amazing people in the media who are a part of our church family, both in TV and radio, in various internet communication companies, newspaper, and numerous other media. But some of them have confided in me, and by the way, we ought to praise for these individuals because they're in such strategic places many times, especially those who are so well known, they have a huge influence in our region and beyond. But some of them have said to me through the years, Pastor, 
There's a lot of pressure to sensationalize the news. Do you know what I mean by that? If a story is not all that interesting, we kind of feel the pressure to make it sound more spectacular or sensational. Or if something is a little bit negative or bad, we feel the pressure to kind of make it more ominous so that more people will tune in and watch. Because really, we're in the business of selling advertising. So, you know, that little teaser that comes on the evening that's trying to get you to watch the 11 o'clock news? Trust me, you'll never hear this. You'll never hear a, during that teaser someone come on and honestly say, you know, folks, nothing really that important or interesting has happened in the Capital District today. We just want you to know. So we've decided to play cartoons tonight at 11 o'clock. Just wanted to let you know that up front. So listen, if you've not gotten enough sleep, you might want to go to bed early. Just relax and take the evening off. You're never going to hear that. Trust me. And there's this pressure that people feel to try to make it sound more ominous, and it creates this anxiety. A hundred years ago, we probably wouldn't even know by now about the horrific volcanic eruptions in Guatemala this week. But because of modern communication, because of the internet and almost real-time reporting on things, listen we now have another thing to cause anxiety that we wouldn't have had 100, 150 years ago. We wouldn't have even known about it, perhaps ever. But as the global community feels smaller and smaller, any anxiety-causing event creates anxiety in all of us. I think another cause is our increasing standard of living. That causes us to worry more. That may sound counterintuitive to you, but... But listen to what I mean by that. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, The sleep of a laborer is sweet whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich person permits him no sleep. Now, as we said last week, you would think that the more you have, the more secure you would feel and the less you would worry. But in reality, just the opposite is true. The more we possess in this world, the more we feel we have to ensure and protect and preserve and guard. And our focus is on trying to make sure that we keep these things, and that creates anxiety in us. I like that proverb that says, being kidnapped for, and held for ransom never worried a poor man. And I guess it doesn't. Sometimes having a lot of things can create a lot of stress. But I'll mention a final one that I think is behind a lot of our worry, and that is smaller and smaller families. And when we just have one child or two children, we tend to focus intense amount of attention and worry, if you will, over every detail of their lives. If I were to ask you, what is your number one worry? The majority of you who are parents would say, my kids. You would. Many of you have said that to me through the years. You worry. We tend to worry about our kids. And if I were to ask you, what is your number two worry? Many of you, the majority perhaps, would say, my grandkids. We worry about them. You say, but pastor, 
why do you say small families increase worry? It's because when people had big families, there's almost a sense in which that kind of diluted your concern a little bit. I'm the youngest of seven kids. My parents many times had no idea where we were. They couldn't worry about us much. I mean, we're all over the place. You got that many kids, you can't even, you don't even have time to worry, all right? You have only one child. Some of you parents know this is true. What do you do when the child drops their pacifier in the dirt? You take that pacifier and you boil it in water to kill those germs. You have two children, child drops a pacifier in the dirt, what do you do? You go over to the faucet and you kind of wash it off a couple of seconds, give it back. You have three children or more, drop the pacifier, what do you do? You go, and you stick it back in. That's what you do. Smaller families can create worry. I love an article that Irma Bombeck had a number of years ago. It's called, To Parent is to Worry. She says, and I quote, one of the dumbest pieces of advice ever given to me by my kids is, don't worry. Are they crazy? That's my job. I've elevated worrying to an art form. This means I can take something as insignificant as, Mom, I'm staying home on New Year's Eve, so don't worry about me, and lie awake all night wondering why my son has no social life. If one of them drives an old car, I worry that some night on a dark road, the car will die and someone will tap them over the head with a tire iron. If he buys new wheels, I worry that he's living on a diet of plastic. If he takes a vacation, I worry that he can't afford it. If he stays home, I think he'll kill himself with stress. If he changes jobs, I worry he's unstable. If he stays at one job too long, I worry that he's in a rut and he'll never get ahead. If he comes home too often, it's probably because he has no friends. If he never comes home, I know he probably plans to put his parents on an ice floe and push them out to sea. If he eats too much, I worry about his cholesterol. If he looks too thin, I worry that he has an eating disorder. The other night, my husband said, do you realize all three kids are employed and their cars are running? What do you think the odds are of that happening? You have nothing to worry about. Fool, how long can that last, she answered. So Jesus drills this message home here in Luke 12. Do not worry. Do not worry. Do not be afraid. Now, before we go any further with this, I think it's important that we pause here and just make an important distinction. I think we need to make a distinction between worry that is oppressive and grinds us down and what I would call appropriate concern that takes action. You say, well, what exactly is the difference? I would put it this way. Concern focuses on probable difficulties and produces action. Worry focuses on improbable difficulties and produces inaction. I hope you see the difference. There's a huge difference between the two. Jesus taught us that we ought to have some concern about the future. He said no one builds a tower unless he first sits down and calculates the cost. No king goes to war unless he spends some time calculating the odds here of this war that he's entering into. So when Jesus says don't worry, 
Please understand this, folks. He's not saying don't buy any life insurance. When Jesus says don't worry, he's not saying don't use a seatbelt in your car. When Jesus says don't worry, he's not saying don't ha- he's not saying don't have any smoke alarms in your house. That's silly. Sometimes the best way to overcome anxiety is to take action. So let me give you some counsel here. Students, are you worried about your grade? I've got a great piece of advice. Study. Study. Take action on that. Married people, are you concerned about the health of your marriage? I've got some great counsel. Reach out and get some help. Don't suffer in silence. Don't think it'll just fix itself and clean itself up up, and we just keep doing the same old things. Reach out and get some help. Take some action. Are you concerned about your finances? I've got a piece of counsel. Sign up for Financial Peace University. Take the class. Create a budget. Live within the budget. That's appropriate concern and action about an issue. So I hope you see the difference. But anxiety focuses on the improbable difficulties and just sits around wringing its hands and doing nothing about it. Oh, what if the economy collapses? Oh, what if my health breaks? What if I get cancer? What if my child and his mate divorce? What if, what if, what if? And you just lie around in misery. Jesus said that is wrong. You are worrying and your worrying is doing no good. But a second question I want to ask today is why is worry a serious spiritual problem? And by the way, it is. That may be a shock to some of you because in the Christian community, we tend to think of worry as kind of an acceptable sin. It's it's no real big deal. Oh yeah, even in spite of all the teaching in scripture about it, even though Jesus hit it head on, we still think, well, it's really okay. In fact, we almost wear it, honestly, as a badge of honor. But why is it such an important, serious spiritual problem? Let me just mention a few things. I think one is it demonstrates wrong priorities. Jesus said in verse 30, for the pagan world runs after all such things. So if you find yourself worried about things like, do I have the latest good-looking clothes? Am I the most popular person in the class? Or, ooh, look, I've got crabgrass in my lawn. If those are the kind of things that are grinding you down with worry, and a host of other things that are fairly trivial, I would ask you to put this test to anything that is worrying you. Here it is. Will this really matter 100 years from now? I ask that question all the time. I really do. When I feel myself getting a little bit stressed out over something, probably the stupidest little thing, the most insignificant incident in the day, and yet I feel that stress and that worry coming on, I catch myself. I've learned this through many years, and I ask, will this really matter 100 years from now? And the truth is, 100 years from now, it honestly won't matter if you had a little bit of crabgrass in your yard. It won't. Trust me. 100 years from now, it won't matter if you were the most popular person in the class or if you had the latest designer fashion every day. It's not going to matter. What's going to matter is, did I really love God? Did I really live my values? Did I really love people? Did I put my family 
in their proper place? How did I use my time and steward my gifts for God? That's what's going to matter a hundred years from now. And that's why Scripture repeatedly encourages us in all kinds of different words to set our affection, to set our mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And that way we can keep our priorities straight. A second thing about worry that makes it so wrong is that it accomplishes nothing. It is a total waste of time and energy. Jesus said in verse 25, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? John Hegg, a preacher, tells about a woman who worried for 30 years that she had cancer. 30 years, three decades. She just knew she was going to come down with cancer. And so every little pain that she felt, oh, I just know, I just know I'm getting cancer right now. She finally died at the age of 73 of pneumonia. She had worried for 30 years about the wrong disease. Worry is a waste of time, thought, and energy. It doubles your trouble. If the things you worry about never materialize, you've wasted all that time and energy. If the things you worry about do materialize, you've still wasted all that time and energy because you couldn't have done anything about it anyway. Worry, somebody said, is enjoying a crisis before it arrives. I think another thing we need to acknowledge is that worry demonstrates a lack of faith. And I think this is the crux of the matter. Jesus, in verse 28, said, Oh, you of little faith. In other words, shouldn't there be some distinctive difference between genuine Christ followers and those who aren't? Something different when it comes to worry. Shouldn't there be a measure of faith that buoys us up during times of stress and trouble? Oswald Chambers said, worry is infidelity. It means we don't really believe that God looks after the details of our lives. So what I'm saying to you, friends, is that the Bible says God works in the midst of all things for the good of those who love him. But worry says, I'm not so sure of that. The Bible says that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. But worry says, ooh, I'm not sure that I can really trust that. The Bible says that God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. But worry says, I'm just not convinced that God is going to really supply. I think I need to worry about that. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Worry says, I'm not so sure I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Even though I know scripture says we're saved by grace through faith and not by our good works. But, oh, that just fills me with anxiety even though I've trusted in Christ said the robin to the sparrow, I'd really like to know why those anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, I think it must be that they have no heavenly father, such as cares for you and me. 
But let's ask a final big question here, and that is, what is Jesus' cure for worry? I think we've seen there are problems with it. It wreaks havoc with our lives, our relationships, our health, our energy level. We've seen that it is a serious spiritual problem. But what's the answer? I think Jesus gives us some answers. Now, I wish that I had some magical spiritual pixie dust that I could just sprinkle over all of us today and we just walk out today and never be anxious again. It's not quite that easy. But in today's passage that we come to in our study through Luke's gospel, I do believe that Jesus gives us some important attitudinal changes here in this passage that we need to embrace. And when we do, God's Holy Spirit will begin to bring peace in our lives. Let me mention number one. Examine the evidence of God's providence in your life. Jesus put it like this here in verse 24. He said, consider the ravens. Now, I occasionally will hear a person talking about their diet say, you know, I don't eat much. I kind of eat like a bird. And they think that's a good metaphor for saying that they kind of pick at their food and don't eat very much. That's really a lousy comparison, to be honest. I understand from ornithologists that some birds, not all birds, some birds eat two to three times their body weight every single day. That meant if you really ate like a bird, some of you would be eating 200 pounds of food a day, 300, 400, 500, 600 pounds of food a day. So that just makes this analogy Jesus uses all the more powerful. Consider how these birds are fed, and yet you'll never see a bird pacing a limb at night going, oh, I just don't know if there's going to be enough worms tomorrow, I'm telling you. I think we're going to be low on bugs tomorrow. Not going to be enough seeds out there to eat. No, God provides. He goes on to say, consider how the lilies grow in verse 27. Well, how do they grow? Jesus here, of course, is talking about wild flowers out in a field. Nobody is putting insecticide on these flowers. Nobody is coming along and cultivating them, and yet they're so beautiful. And Jesus said in verse 27, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And the point is, if God feeds the birds, if he clothes the, the lilies, how much more will he take care of you? So examine God's providence. Let me ask you a couple of questions today. I want to get you to actually raise your hand. And I just want you to know in advance, my hand is up on both of these questions I'm about to ask you. First question, how many of you would say, whatever your age, you know what? You have always had enough to eat. Now, here's the deal. That when you got up in the morning, you could honestly say, that there was at least something in your cupboard, in your refrigerator, in your freezer, in your pantry, something that you could eat. You might not, it might not have been caviar. It might not have been filet mignon. You might not have even been crazy about it. It might have been crackers or something. But there was something that you could eat. I can say that. How many of you can say that, that that's been true all your life? Okay, wow. That, thank you. I'm just going to ask you one more question. I want to see a show of hands. How many of you... However old you are, 
younger or middle-aged or older, you've gotten up every day, and this is true of me, it's been true in my life, and I've never had a morning that I got up and said, you know, I just don't have anything to wear today. Now, I know there are a lot of people who may have 50 outfits in that closet, but they still say, I don't have anything to wear. I understand that. But I'm talking about nothing to wear where you literally would have to say, I've got to go out there naked today because I have no clothes to put on. That's never happened to me. Now, I wonder how many of you, I want to see a show of hands, every day of your life you've had clothes to wear. Could I see? So you, did, you weren't on naked and afraid or anything like that, right? You, you've had clothes to wear. Good. Excellent. And most of us, I think, have had shelter over our heads. So here's the question. How many years do we have to live constantly having food, constantly having clothes to wear, laying our head down at night, having a roof over our head, having shelter? How long is it going to take for us to trust that the God who's taken care of us in the past is going to keep taking care of us in the future? What is God going to have to demonstrate to us to make believers out of us that God really cares. I like that plaque that reads, Lord, help me to remember that nothing is going to happen to me today that you and I can't handle together. Examine the evidence of God's providence. Secondly, place your primary emphasis on the spiritual. If you really want to get consistent victory over worry in your life, place your primary emphasis on the spiritual. Verse 31, Jesus said, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Now, here's what I've observed in my own life and in the lives of others. Worry, listen, worry, are you hearing this, is often an indication that some priorities are out of line. It really is. So let me give you four P words, and you want to be sure that these four P words are always in proper order and alignment. You are, first of all, a person with a relationship with God. That's number one, your relationship with God. Some of you are also, second P word, a partner. You either have a mate that you're married to or very good, wonderful, close friends that you're doing life with. You have a, a partner. That's a second priority. A third, some of you are parents. That's the third P word. And if you're a parent, boy, that's a high priority. It's not as high as those other two, but you have a relationship with children. And then fourth is you have a professional relationship with a job, a vocation, and people who are a part of that. Now, here's where the problem comes in. If numbers three and four get out of order and become a, get ahead of God and of your marriage, that's where a lot of worry really slips in if you'll take the time to just check it out and investigate it. We've got to be sure that we put first things first. Don't just talk about seeking his kingdom first. Don't just give lip service to that. The prophet said, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts, woo, they're gone. Their hearts are far away from me. How many times do we do that? Talk a good game, but in reality, 
our priorities have gotten out of order. And the next thing and the final thing I would mention is practice the art of living one day at a time. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Luke, volume two of that commentary series, shares the story that when Abraham Lincoln was going to Washington, D.C. to be inaugurated, he stopped by in New York to visit with Horace Greeley, the famous writer. And in talking with Greeley, he shared an anecdote that was meant to be an answer to the question that everybody was asking Lincoln, are we really going to have a civil war? That was the question everybody wanted to know the answer to. And it was filling people with so much anxiety and worry. And so he shared this story. In his circuit riding days, Lincoln and his other attorney companions riding to the next session of court had crossed many swollen rivers on a particular journey. But the formidable Fox River was still ahead of them. And they kind of talking to one another said, wow, we've already had trouble going across some of these smaller streams. How in the world are we going to get over the Fox River? And they were all filled with anxiety about how are we going to cross the river? Well, that night, as darkness fell, they stopped for the night at a log tavern where they fell into a conversation with the Methodist presiding elder of the district who rode through that entire country, knew it better than anyone because of his, all of his circuit riding and preaching and, and, and leadership with different churches. And they gathered about him and asked him about the present state of the river. And he said, oh yes, I know all about the Fox River. I've crossed it often and understand it well. But I have one fixed rule with regard to the Fox River. One fixed rule. I never cross it till I reach it. I never cross it till I reach it. Those of you who are parents, have you ever taken your kids to a ball game, a concert, a special event that required tickets? Perhaps you were like Debbie and me. We would usually keep the tickets, our kids' tickets, until a special moment. You know what that special moment was? When they needed them. And when we were at the door or at the gate, ready to go in, then we would hand the ticket to our small children because then it couldn't be lost or misplaced. You probably did the same kind of thing. And here's how our Heavenly Father is. God has all the resources in the world. And when you run into that difficult time in the future, you know what he's going to do? He's going to reach in his pocket and pull out some extra grace for you and hand it to you. Why didn't he give it to you before? Because you didn't need it. You need it now. And he gives it to us just in time. Never too early. Never too late. Being a Christian it's not this la-la land experience where you say, oh, praise God, nothing that really bad's ever going to happen to me, I'll tell you right now. That's ridiculous and unrealistic. Being a real Christian means realistically acknowledging, sure, bad things happen to everyone. I'll have some struggles, but I'll tell you what, God's got this. God's got my back. 
He's proven to me over and over and over again that he is faithful and he will never give me anything, no matter how much it stretches me, that I cannot handle by his grace. And in the meantime, you go on living one day at a time. So friend, let me just put it to you straight. If you're worrying today about stuff next week or next month or next year, you're sapping the energy from today and you're not doing yourself or anyone any good. Remember that line from Kipling? If you can dream and not let your dreams become your master, then you'll be a man, my son. The problem is most people cannot dream of the future without their dreams becoming their master. And they get all wrapped up in their dreams and they fret and they churn and they worry about the future. And they wish days away and whole months away. Somebody said, if you were to eliminate all of life that we wish away, most of us would probably live about a month. Live one day at a time. I close with this. Gary Freeman used to tell about a young girl who was so unhappy. She just wanted to be married one day, and she felt then she would be really fulfilled, and she wanted some, some children in the future. That's all she wanted, just wanted to be a mom and a wife. And she just hated school, couldn't wait to get out of school. And finally, after graduation, in God's providence, she was able to get married to a wonderful guy, and, and they, they had some children pretty quickly, and she was actually shocked at how much care and attention those children required. And she found herself saying, while she was changing diapers and fixing bottles and budgets, she found herself saying, boy, I can't wait until all these kids are off to school so I can have some relaxation time. She just couldn't wait for them to go to school. And finally, they went to school. And she was excited. She was about to relax and enjoy life. And her husband came to her and said, hon, hon, I know we're in a new season now, but you know, it's going to cost a lot to help our kids go to college. I kind of feel the responsibility, don't you, that we ought to help them a little bit. We can't do it all, but we can help them a little bit. That's going to be really expensive. Would you consider going to work, getting a job to earn some money? And she didn't want to go to work. She hated the idea, but she also loved her kids, and she felt some responsibility there. And so she went to work, hated every day of it, said, boy, I can't wait, she said, until these kids are out of college and these bills are paid so I can relax and enjoy myself and quit this job. And finally, the last bill was paid. The last kid was out of college. She walked into the boss's office and said, I quit, with a big smile on her face. He said, oh, well, obviously, you can do what you want, but you don't want to quit now. You know, if you just work 10 more years, then you'd be able to retire with a pension. You're going to miss out on a lot of money if you quit now. It would be kind of silly, really, to retire this early. And so she sucked it up again, worked 10 more years, crossing every day off the calendar. She could not wait to retire. And finally... She and her husband retired together. They moved to Florida, bought a cute little cottage, and they spent the rest of their day sitting out on their front porch, thumbing through the picture album 
of the good old days. Can I ask you a question? Why is it that life always looks so good in prospect or in retrospect and so seldom looks good now? Why? Why is that? Jesus said, do you want to overcome worry? Live one day at a time. Learn to enjoy the moment. This is a great day. God's allowed me to live in this day. I am going to enjoy it to the max. God will take care of tomorrow. Because of what he's done for me at Calvary, one day, one day, he's going to take me to heaven forever. But today, I'm going to pray, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, help us to take the words of Jesus to heart and to not suck the energy out of today by worrying about a single thing about tomorrow. And may you be glorified through our lives as we honor you and live every day to the full. In Jesus' name, amen.